Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It's April the 1st, full, uh, Fall's Day, all Fall's Day, uh, 2023. Uh, a few years ago, if I'd have announced on April 1st that the Cold War had reappeared, uh, you'd all smile and suggest that uh, that was just an April Fool's joke. Today, it's not so funny. Uh, first American journalist was just arrested in Russia since the Cold War, a Wall Street Journal reporter. And both left and right are reporting this as the beginning of a new Cold War between the West and, and Russia. Uh, Washington Post talks about this being the first uh, U.S. reporter being accused of spying since the Cold War. And then on the left, Fox News are suggesting that the Cold War is back on again. And creepily, it's not just the Western-Russia relationship where the Cold War has uh, been reborn, but also in terms of our, our meaning the West relationship with Russia, uh, with China, uh, we're a little bit more divided on that. New York Times asks recently whether we need a Cold War with China, and those on the right seem to accept that it's a fact, and that now we, we again, I use that word carefully, need to win a new Cold War with China. The Cold War, of course, um, took place between uh, a formally or officially between 1947 and 1991, December 91, according to Wikipedia, that font of knowledge. And it was um, shadowed, so to speak, by something called the Iron Curtain, which was uh, a division, a geographical division between East and West that marked the geographical demarcation of this Cold War, this first Cold War. And we're going back in history, or perhaps back to the future, with my guest today. Uh, Timothy Phillips uh, has a new book out, Retracing the Iron Curtain, a 3,000-mile journey through the end and afterlife of the Cold War. It was written, actually, before the Ukraine War and the... Uh, rekindling, if that's the right word, of uh, very poor relations, almost warlike relations between Russia and the West. And I'm curious, um, Timothy, uh, whether if you were writing the book now um, and we'd had this tragedy of the Russian invasion of Ukraine, would it have been different in some way or other? Hi. Uh, so... I, it probably would have been different. I um, finished writing the book, finally put it to bed uh, four months after Russia staged its full invasion of Ukraine last year. So I was able to reflect a little on how the text I had mainly completed before the 24th of February last year shaped up. Um, I think it would have been different, certainly in terms of the travel I did. I might have tried uh, and been tempted to go and uh, look at some of the new Iron Curtain um, that is being laid down if, if you buy the idea that the Cold War is in some ways coming back or, or a new version of it. So I might have been tempted to go further east um, and look at how things are in Ukraine, how things are <clears throat> between Poland and Belarus, between uh, 
uh, and for viewers, here we have a map. It's a remarkable journey that Christopher made from the uh, the top of the uh, the Arctic uh, Circle from uh, from uh, the the Russian Finnish or Russian Norwegian border all the way down to uh, the modern Middle East around the Black Sea. So it's quite a journey you made. Yeah, um, I mean, I was very lucky to make it just before the pandemic began and travel like that became impossible for two or three years. Um, uh, I think uh, in some ways uh, it would have been interesting to go back to Finland or Sweden, two countries that, as many of your viewers will know, have applied to join NATO, having not applied to join NATO throughout the actual Cold War. Um, they were already feeling a bit hot under the collar because of the... Uh, pressure and dirty ops and other um, kinds of uh, saber rattling that they were feeling coming from Moscow back in 2019 when I made the journey. And then really very quickly after the invasion happened, the invasion of Ukraine, they decided to take this historic step of um, uh, joining NATO. And that actually um, would have changed uh, the Cold War greatly because Russia, Soviet Union, uh, got a great deal of benefit out of the fact that particularly Finland, its very long border with Finland, was not a border with NATO. It was not strictly one of the very hot Iron Curtain borders, even though Finland was a democracy and a capitalist country. So that would have and been And of very course, the Finns were involved in a particularly bloody war with the, the Soviets. Um, uh, Timothy, this is the 3,000-mile journey you made, about a third of it by foot. Why did you do it? Did you just fancy a long walk through the middle of Europe? <laughs> well, I mean, that is a wonderful thing to do if you're able to. And part of it was a desire to write a book that involved travel and interviewing people and seeing physical remnants of um, history. Uh, my previous book um, had been largely based on archival research in the MI5 archives in London. And I absolutely loved that. But by the end of yeah, it... Yeah, your, your previous book was The Secret Twenties, British Intelligence, the Russians and the Jazz Age. You've also wrote an interesting book on uh, the tragedy of Belson, uh, Beslan, um, the tragedy of school number one, the mass killing in Russia. So you're, you're, you have some historical and geographical familiarity with the material in retracing the Iron Curtain. That's right. I think what I realized at the end of writing my second book was it was a regret to me that all of the people involved in the secret 20s were, of course, dead. And I couldn't interview them. I couldn't ask them questions. So I really wanted to do a book this time uh, that would allow me to talk to living people where the narrative that I ended up writing would be shaped by what real people told me. Um, I also came to the view that the famous definition of the Iron Curtain, Churchill's definition, which he gave in a speech in Fulton, Missouri. Yeah, on March the 5th, 1946. His definition was that it ran from Stettin in the Baltic to Trieste in the Adriatic. And I became aware several years ago, long before this book became an idea, that really the Iron Curtain must have run far to the north of that and far to the south of that because it must have happened everywhere where the capitalist, largely democratic West abutted the socialist, uh, undemocratic uh, East. And, and so I kind of, over time, developed this idea that maybe it would be nice to go and rehabilitate those bits in the north and the south in Turkey and Azerbaijan, in Norway, Finland, uh, which had actually had Iron Curtain Cold War experiences, but we tended not to talk about them or write books about them quite so much as we talked and wrote about Berlin, East Germany, Czechoslovakia, um, 
and so on. So, so that was where the germ of the idea of the trip came from. What finally pushed me into writing the book at the time that I did was a massive influx of refugees and migrants that Europe experienced in 2015. And I saw then uh, that lots of governments reached for building impassable borders, huge fences, razor wire, walls in some cases. And, and it seemed to me that governments did this without in any way noticing the irony or the echoes of the Cold War um, and ditched the kind of policies of openness that had been so welcomed and, and, and so long awaited in 1989. Timothy, you're also re retracing in a way in your, in your journey and in your themes the, the footprints of, of literary giants. So many great writers have, have, um, have, have done books and articles um, on, on, on what you've written about, the places, the time. I mean, just thinking out loud, I mean, one often obviously thinks of Gunter Grass when one thinks of the northern coastline of Germany. You think of Seaboard, uh, whose work is slightly different from yours. One thinks of Jan Morris when it comes to Trieste and her magnificent work on, on travel. Were there particular writers that you were either following their footsteps or trying to emulate in style or form? In terms of emulation in style or form, no. In terms of uh, following in footsteps, uh, I was traveling alone for four months uh, for, the, for the journey back in 2019. And one of the things I did before I left was uh, I, I loaded up a Kindle with one novel or piece of travel writing or history book about each of the countries I was visiting and, and as far as possible about um, uh, the Cold War period. Um, so I tried to read either in advance of or when I was in the country, something related to um, those times and those places. And um, Sophie Oxenon, uh, a Finnish Estonian writer who writes quite a lot about uh, the the sort of ambivalent attitude Finland had to the Soviet Union was someone I really got a lot out of reading. Um, uh, and also, um, I can't remember his name now, but um, uh, Maxim Leo, uh, who wrote an amazing uh, uh, memoir of growing up in East Germany um, called Red Love, I think. Um, and, and those are both fantastic books that really kind of helped to shape how I experienced the places and the history of the places. In terms of style, I didn't kind of feel the anxiety of influence. I I knew I wanted to be a voice in the book, and I am a voice in the book from time to time, but I knew I wanted the main voices in the book to be the people whose stories I decided to tell. Um, and so there's a lot of reported speech from people I had conversations with um, and, um, and a lot of kind of description of how I came to meet them um, and the circumstances of their lives. So I would say in terms of literary style, some people, for instance, Jean Morris and Trieste, I would say some, some, some books are more self-consciously literary perhaps than, than mine is. I mean, so many magnificent writers have done this stuff. Did you take your camera and a video recorder and an audio recorder? Did you keep a blog or a, a podcast to accompany uh, what you were doing? So some of those things, uh, I, I recorded most of the interviews uh, that I, uh, whenever I could, when I could, when it wasn't so impromptu that it was impossible, I recorded interviews in full. I used 
the first lockdown of the pandemic, sitting on my spare bed with my legs going numb to transcribe those interviews and write them up. I kept a travel diary as I went. So, uh, you know, just writing every day what I had seen, my immediate impressions of it. Um, uh, so I did those things and I used my iPhone to take uh, pictures everywhere I could, um, sometimes pictures of information boards in museums because I didn't want to forget or didn't have time to transcribe everything I was reading, but then also pictures of things that uh, moved me or touched me or seemed to be important. And, and there are around 80 of those pictures, along with a few pictures from kind of library and archive sources um, in the book, which is one of the things I was really delighted that the publishers were willing to do. One of the mistakes I would publicly acknowledge, uh, uh, Timothy, is I forgot to ask you for the photos before this show. So for people watching, you won't get to see it. Uh, are there places they can, in addition, obviously, to buying the book, which everyone needs to do? It, it's just out in the US. It's already out in the UK. It comes uh, in the UK. The edition is called The Curtain and the Wall. And in the US, it's Retracing the Iron Curtain. I don't know what that says about the US and UK publishing industry. I think that's all publishers do. They come up with titles and they claim to be important, right? Yeah. And I mean, interesting. I did have an interesting conversation with the American publisher about the title. And um, they said, and I think there's some truth in this, they said that uh, the concept of the wall and which wall you might mean might mean something different, certainly as top of mind um, to an American than it would. Oh, will. because of uh, you know whose wall. Because of the other wall, yeah. So I think that, that there's there's some truth in that. So um, I could understand why they wanted to have a different title. As you said earlier, you wrote this book, The Secret Twenties, which also got a great review in The Guardian uh, a few years ago. Um, a book about the origins of the Cold War, British intelligence, the Russians and the Jazz Age. Did you come to this project with some preconceived ideas about perhaps Western paranoia and Western responsibility for this quote-unquote Cold War, the one that was inaugurated with Churchill's famous Iron Curtain speech uh, in March 1946 in Missouri? Well, I mean, I, I sometimes get accused of being too hard on uh, Russia and uh, over... You can't be hard enough on this show, right, Timothy. You can do whatever you want. You could even... Well, well, I, I mean, too hard on Russia. We can get, your mock, we can get our, mock, um, our, our, our mock doll of Putin and stick pins in him. Too negative about the potential benefits of the socialist uh, countries that existed after the Second World War. Uh, I, I would agree that those accusations have dried up largely in, since February the 24th, 2022. Um, I think everybody, including historians, uh, especially if you're trying to tell a broad story rather than looking at some very, very narrow, specific uh, piece of history. You know, inevitably you bring your own preconceptions, your own concerns to the table, and you try to minimise the effect they have in terms of sort of infecting your view of sources and the evidence you're learning. Uh, for me, I think I'm often amazed at how paranoid uh, Western countries were in the Cold War I'm amazed at how misplaced their paranoia was sometimes. So perhaps they had things they ought to be legitimately paranoid about, but then they would go off in a cul-de-sac and, and, and lose themselves and waste loads of resources being worried about something irrelevant. For me, what is always a clincher is, you know, I sort of 
put myself, try and put myself into what it would have been like to grow up in socialist Hungary or Czechoslovakia or Russia in the Soviet Union. Um, and the kind of lack of, um, the lack of autonomy, uh, the lack of the ability to change key aspects of your life, um, the lack of freedom, if you like, the freedom is a very loaded term. Um, that always seems to me to, to kind of come out on top as one of the, one of the cardinal problems that the East had over the West. There were many things that were problematic in the West, ways in which the West was very imperfect, failed to deal with its problems, pretended it was better than it was. But for me, that fundamental lack of freedom, the difficulty people had in influencing even very basic aspects of their lives, um, it, it does mean that I think, you know, it was both understandable and a good thing that that system, uh, that communist system collapsed. And indeed, that lack of freedom uh, people's hungering after something other than just being bombarded with propaganda and given the very basic minimum to live on. That that really was one of the things that spelled the end um, of the Eastern Bloc in the 80s. Yeah, talking of the 80s, um, Timothy, uh, back then I used to travel backwards and forwards between the West and the East or whatever you want to call it. Um, spent time in Bu Budapest, Bucharest, went to East Berlin, of course, and I even lived in Sarajevo in, in Yugoslavia in wow. the early 80s, although Yugoslavia was, of course, somewhere caught between East and West. Um, and it always seemed obvious to me, I mean, maybe I was slightly deluded, it was a, a victim of Western propaganda, that crossing the Iron Curtain was a, was a very vivid cultural event and a political event. You went from freedom and advertising and relative prosperity to places that didn't have enough meat, that didn't have heating, that was dominated by police. Um, it, it, is my memory biased or, or, or was that true? Was there a very vivid contrast between one side of the water of the curtain and the other? Yes, I, I think there was. I think um, in the 80s in particular, the gap grew really large and and became unmissable and and that was one of the things that spend of the system so i think you can you can see moments in the 50s and the 60s in particular when uh large numbers of economies across europe both west and east are really recovering from a devastating war there are shortages is an aspect of the lives of many europeans irrespective of the political system they're living under in the 50s in particular in the 70s, then, you see that lots of the socialist democracies start to catch up. One of the really fascinating and strange things about Moscow and the Soviet Union is that it, it, it's unusual in imperial, in terms of the history of empires, because it was never the richest part of its own empire. East Germany, Czechoslovakia, Hungary were all more advanced uh, economies at the point when they were taken into the socialist even, camp. even Poland. I'm not sure about Romania, but certainly yeah. Poland. And, and so that's a really kind of when we start to try and understand some of the apparent polit political action today that comes from a place of envy and grudge in Moscow. Uh, actually, that's not just about the collapse of the Soviet Union. Those those can and were animating uh, forces during the Soviet period as well, because people people kind of wondered why life wasn't better in the Soviet Union, given that they were kind of top of the pile. Um, but 
to go back to your question about kind of uh, affluence and the look and feel of these countries, in the 70s, some socialist countries, particularly Poland, East Germany, Czechoslovakia, got access to Western bank lending, uh, which doesn't sound very socialist, um, but they did it in a pragmatic way. And suddenly they were able to boost the amount of consumer goods that they were producing. But then in the early 80s, there was a big recession across the world um, and the banks just pulled out. So uh, I think Poland it was that defaulted on its debts in that recession and the banks just stopped lending. And so suddenly you've got a population that started to be told to have an appetite for these things and then they cannot be fulfilled. And that's where you get the kind of last four or five years across the Eastern Bloc of empty shelves, queuing for basic prod produce, um, being able to only buy one type of shoe in the shoe shop, uh, a queue for eight years for a television, those kinds of things. Yeah, it'd be interesting, given the Ukraine crisis and the boycott, the economic boycotts, whether we'll see eventually the recreation of those very vivid economic differences between Russia and then on the other side, Ukraine, the Baltics. What about today, Timothy? Is there, in terms of your, your amazing trip uh, on foot and, and by car, are there legacies of those contrasts? Or now when you go between uh, what had once been part of the Iron Curtain on, on the Western and the Eastern Front, particularly in Germany um, or, or in Central Europe, do these places now look identical? Could anyone tell whether they were on the Eastern or the Western side of the curtain? It's a great question. They look a hell of a lot more similar than they did in 1989 or 1995 or 2001. So definitely the direction of travel is to converge. And I think, you know, I've heard friends say that sadly we've all had to watch a lot of footage of Ukrainian cities in the last year. Um, and often that's to view lives being lost there, them being bombed to smithereens. But one of the things you notice um, as you look at it, is, is how many of them look very modern and advanced and like cities everywhere else in Europe. Um, some countries in particular, Czech Republic and Slovenia, um, so Czech Republic, formerly part of Czechoslovakia, Slovenia, formerly part of Yugoslavia, their average um, wages, uh, so average annual income, is now at Western European standard. So they have, they have fully caught up, if you like, if that's a game. Uh, East Germany, uh, as is well known, uh, the, 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 the parts of federal Germany today that were in East Germany have not yet caught up, even after 30 years of, more than 30 years of massive subsidy from West to East within Germany, which is one of the richest countries in the world. Um, uh, there are, however, other kind of differences that, that persist, particularly the cost of labour, the cost of human input to creating things remains much cheaper in uh, all of the former Eastern Bloc. And so what you find with people who live close to the border, I saw this in Norway and I saw this um, in uh, Germany uh, and Czech Republic, um, they will crisscross the border to do things that are economically much cheaper on the other side. Uh, so in both Norway and Germany, people were traveling to Russia and to Czech Republic to have their eyesight tested, to have their fillings done and other dental work, um, anything that involved a lot of kind of professional input, much cheaper, but still at a very high standard in those countries. Conversely, and this I didn't expect, um, people 
um, in Russia when they could cross into Norway, which now is much harder since the start of the war in Ukraine. Um, they were coming across to Norway to buy electronic goods. Uh, so hi-fis, um, TVs, fridges, um, computers. And that wasn't because they were cheaper in Norway. Of course not. It's because they had a higher um, confidence that they would be genuine articles and not um, fake uh, because they had little confidence in Russia that they wouldn't be buying a fake. So those kinds of kind of crisscrossing economic ties definitely exist where you have an open border. Yeah, it's a, it's a fascinating time. Of course, all of it pre-internet when nobody was on the same network. Um, did you find in your conversations and reading that the border territories of the Iron Curtain people on both sides were somehow better informed about the world because people on the eastern side were able to access the BBC and perhaps some Western media. After all, at that time, everyone was purely dependent what, on newspapers, print material, television, and radio. It was a pre-internet age, pre-globalized media age. What did you discover about the role of media of different media on uh, on both sides of the iron curtain <laughs> um so in terms of official media in the east you would find that it would cover big stories from the west quite truthfully where those stories reflected badly on the so uh, an enormous amount of really very good coverage about uh aspects of uh, America's behavior in the Vietnam War, aspects of Britain and other countries, uh, such as New Zealand's failure to boycott apartheid South Africa in the 1970s. But of course, utter silence or even actively misleading reporting uh, of problems within their own countries or, you know, uh, across the Eastern Bloc about, about um, the putting down of the Prague Spring, for instance, in 1968. Uh, the place between east and west and the reason why the border fence was so fierce uh in germany between east and west germany is because they all spoke the same language and that was not true in most other places and so you know uh, if you're a czechoslovak citizen uh up against the border with germany or austria you have to be able to speak german in order to watch the western although many czechs did or do yes they absolutely but but germany um, was the place where the biggest threat of truthful information uh, percolating in from the West um, existed. And actually, by the 1980s, everywhere in, in Eastern Germany could receive West German television signals, apart from the island of Rügen um, and the large city of Dresden. Um, and Dresden was known colloquially in East Germany as the Valley of the Unknowing, because... Um, uh, East German citizens in Dresden were said not to really know what was going on in East Germany because they couldn't watch the West German news reports. Yeah, I was just in, uh, we made a movie about how to fix democracy. We did some filming both in Leipzig and Dresden, which are now, I guess you could call it the, the most German of cities in the sense that so much of the architecture has been saved. Uh, and I'm guessing, uh, Timothy, if you really want to imagine what the cold, uh, what the Iron Curtain was like, you'd have to go to Korea. I mean, that's the last place on earth where there is this incredibly uh, paranoid division between communism and, and, and free market capitalism. Is that fair? 
Well, I would have agreed with you at the start of my trip. Um, I did a lot of research in order to plot the trip, but one of the true surprises was when I got to the very last place on my journey, the most southerly point, which is this part of Azerbaijan, which was in the Soviet Union, uh, called Nechichivan. And Nechichivan is a part of Azerbaijan that has a sort of one to two kilometer, one to two mile border um, uh, with Turkey. And so that was the last place in the south where um, NATO and the Warsaw Pact met. Uh, Nechichivan is a bit like, I imagine, North Korea. Because although the rest of Azerbaijan is quite an affluent, yeah, unfortunately, it's just not visible. Yeah, on that just, map. just off the map, you can imagine it. Yeah, just, 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 <laughs> just to the east of Turkey. Exactly. Um, uh, Nakhichevan is a bit of Azerbaijan that, unlike the rest, which is very capitalist and quite glitzy, even though it's not democratic, um, Nakhichevan is the birthplace of the family that rules Azerbaijan. And it's run as a kind of personal fiefdom of this family and really as a kind of museum to the leader, Haydar Aliyev, who was the first post-communist leader and died in the early 2000s. But he's venerated um, really as a, as a sort of saintly figure, a godlike figure, much in the same way that the grandfather of the current leader of North Korea is. There's a massive statue. It's actually the image. Yeah, of the I was just in Kazakhstan, and uh, th that although there's been a rebellion against the, the the regime there recently, but that seems similar also. Yeah, and like one of the fascinating things, it's not just about statues. It's it's alarmingly clean, and that's because if you're a public sector worker in Nakhichevan, part of your job, even if you're a doctor or a teacher, is to come out and sweep the streets in front of your place of work. Um, even though it's 40 degree heat, you're not allowed to dry washing on the balcony of your flat because the leadership thinks it makes the city look messy. Um, and there's almost no private enterprise. Only families closely connected to the ruling family are allowed to open things like kiosks, mini markets, um, cafes. So it's a really strange, quiet place with empty streets. Nobody wants to talk to you because they think someone will be watching. It's not something I experienced anywhere else, even in Russia at the time that I visited. Now, things might be different there now. Um, uh, but yeah, so Nakhichevan really had echoes of what I think North Korea would be like. The, the axis, the geographical axis of your work and of the Cold War is east-west. But is it, would it be fair to say, Timothy, that the reality of today's world is north-south? We've done many shows on the refugee crisis of many Africans and people from the Middle East trying to get to the North, trying not just Western Europe, but even Eastern Europe. Um, has geography changed in terms of the profound division in the world, not being between East and West, but between North and South in the 2020s? You know, it's such a good observation. And I think it is, fundamentally, it must be true. And it is true. And yet, what's really interesting is how East-West keeps on reasserting itself as the fundamental uh, axis of geopolitics in the world. And, and the Ukraine war, I think, is, is another example of that happening. But Willy Brandt, who features in my book because he was the chancellor of West Germany, who reached out with an olive branch to East Germany in the early 70s and really began the formal recognition of the two states, tried to be friendly, tried to help to kind of de-escalate the tensions um, in the centre of Europe. When he retired as chancellor, one of the reports he wrote, a groundbreaking report, I think for the UN um, in the late 70s or early 80s, was about how North-South was going to become 
the new axis. And one of the problems of Europe, whether it was communist Europe or capitalist Europe, was its its devouring of too much of the Earth's natural resources um, for hard industry, consumer goods, affluence of of its own people in and that this would no longer be possible as other countries demanded their share share of the pie. So it, it that's fascinating to discover that he was doing that, you know, 40 years ago. And I think that analysis holds up pretty well in an era of um, you know, more environmental thinking. Um, and yet here we are again um with the news dominated almost every day of the last year by an east-west conflict yeah and uh, it, there's no doubt that putin himself i mean he's an explicit nostalgic n- nostalgist for the soviet union but there's also a degree of nostalgia i think in russia and perhaps even in the west uh, of a period that you write about where this east-west division was the, the main game, the the, the 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 central play in the history of the world. Now it's it's gone elsewhere. Finally, um, finally, uh, Timothy, uh, as the world, as as I said at the beginning, as we teeter on a new Cold War or parallel Cold Wars over Ukraine between the West and Russia, and then this growing threat of a uh, a Western Chinese Cold War. What advice did you learn what did what wisdom did you learn from your travels uh in terms of de-escalation and tolerance without selling out to one kind of unpleasant regime or other yeah i i I mean i feel i learned a tremendous amount in the course of doing the book but nothing that ever has sort of uh resolved itself in my mind into something like a template for how to behave uh, Willy Brandt, who I was just mentioning, the mm. chancellor who reached out from West Germany to East Germany, uh, you can, and I have read it both ways, you can read what he did as a tremendously uh, magnanimous gesture, a pacifist de-escalatory gesture. You can also read it as a kind of collusion with a really terrible regime that um, actually allowed that regime to hobble on for perhaps 10 or 15 years longer than it might have otherwise. So, you know, there's a kind of a good and bad side to many of these actions. Uh, I I think the, one of the things I was most surprised by was Officer Khrushchev, who came after Stalin. Khrushchev's very strong desire to de-escalate the tensions in Europe. He gave Finland back part of Finland that the Soviets had seized after the war, and he and engineered the reunification of Austria because Austria had been divided after the war in the same way that Germany was. He re-engineered that and he hoped that that might lead to the reunification of Germany as a neutral country. But the Western leaders doubted his motives, didn't want to go uh, meet him halfway. um, And so that moment passed with not as much achieved from it as might have been. Um, So I do think, I guess my advice would be we currently have some a really terrible leader in the Kremlin, a very frightening person. Um, there may not be much that can be achieved with him apart from to avoid further escalation. Um, but at some future point, when there is someone who is perhaps less belligerent, perhaps less talented as a kind of uh, despotic figure, um, it will be important, or someone with other motives and motivations, it will be important for leaders working with Russia to achieve as much as possible with that person um, rather than 
being tentative, slow, uh, thinking about their own narrow interests. That's one thing that I, that, that I really, that, that, that I did come away feeling, that you have to make the most of when you have a good leader because clearly you'd never have them forever.